Hey there, welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This episode sponsored by my amazing patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. They're amazing people just like you who support the podcast and want me to continue producing content. We're thrilled to be bringing you a fresh take on farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help to spread the word. Share the podcast with your friends and family and leave us a review on your preferred platform. Your support helps us reach a wider audience and keeps the show going strong. Don't forget to check out the sponsor links in the show notes and support our amazing sponsors who keep the show running. But wait, there's more. We're excited to announce that we now have a Ranching Reboot Discord server where you can connect with other fans, discuss the show, and even connect with me directly. This is a space for you to connect with like-minded people and dive deeper into the topics that matter to you most. So join us on Discord to be a part of the Ranching Reboot community. Check the show notes for a link. Finally, we're always looking for new and fresh ideas for the show. If you have any suggestions or topics you'd like us to cover, send them our way at redhillsrancher at gmail.com. Together, let's reboot your thinking and revolutionize the way we approach farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that run them. Thank you for your support. Podcast this week. It's a great conversation with my good friend Roy Foltzgraf from Northeast Colorado. We talk about how he's doing soil health on his 2,000-acre farm without animals, without irrigation, and how he's marketing non-commodity crops in non-traditional ways, expanding the farm because he's made it so profitable, what to do with crops that the elevator won't take, finding markets for those non-commodity crops and innovative marketing strategies, and we also talk about the rural brain drain, how to grow a business with the bottom third of a graduating class and the challenges of that. So stick around after the ad break. We're going to talk to Roy Foltzgraf. Confession time. I have a very hard time eating. I'm a picky eater and it's been a struggle my whole life to fuel my body properly. When I got curious about nutrition, I asked my doctor about vitamins and that led to a conversation about where vitamins come from. He didn't know, and I realized I needed to make a change, so I started searching for a better source of high-quality nutritional supplements to spend my hard-earned dollars on. I reached out to several companies, and I'm proud to announce a partnership with a company I can stand behind. Introducing One Earth Health Grass-Fed Beef Organ Supplements. Organ meats are the most nutrient-dense foods we can eat and have been uniquely treasured by our ancestors. Organ meats are not only nutrient-dense, but they're also a great source of essential vitamins and minerals. The liver is packed with vitamin A, K, and E, while the heart is a great natural source of COQ10. The spleen contains four times the amount of iron as the liver, and the kidney is a great source of vitamin B complex. The pancreas supports gut health. I can't tell you how much better I feel since I started taking these supplements. When I don't take them, I have much less energy and focus. Just a few capsules every morning gives me everything my body needs to thrive. We are built to eat diverse diets that include whole animals and organ meats. We have lost our perspective on food and its purpose. Give yourself the gift of radical health. Give yourself One Earth Health grass-fed beef organ supplements. Visit www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or just click the link in the show notes. This episode also sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links are my new favorite meat snack. Simple and clean ingredients, gluten-free, no grains, hormones, or antibiotics or dyes. Naturally preserved by fermentation, no nitrates, corn syrup, or liquid smoke. Boba links are tangy and delicious, individually wrapped for maximum freshness. I keep one in my pocket for a healthy midday snack while I'm on the ranch. Try Boba links today, check the show notes for a link, and use the code BOBOREBOOT for $10 off your first package. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, today we have something a little bit special. We have my friend Roy Foltzgraf from Northeast Colorado. And um, Roy's one of those strange guys doing all kinds of soil health stuff without livestock or irrigation. So uh, we're going to talk about that and, and a bunch more stuff. So welcome to Ranching Reboot, Mr. Roy. Thanks, Brian. It's um, great to be on here. Uh, it's uh, been good to get to know you through the co last couple of conferences and stuff and kind of excited to share what what i know and my, what my opinions are because that and five bucks will get you a, a cup of coffee someplace you can still find a good cup of coffee for five bucks i didn't say good did i <laughs> you said a cup yep that, that's fair i grinded brew my own at home so that's i understand I, I mean a good cup of coffee i don't even know what it cost anymore there's uh there's a little kind of a local coffee chain called Scooters. They're, mm -hmm. they're pretty good. I, I would much rather support them than Starbucks. And then there's a couple yeah. of other local coffee shops we hit every once in a while. But oftentimes we find ourselves in town pretty late in the day, and it's not a time of day I want to be drinking coffee. <laughs> See, I'm lucky caffeine doesn't really bother me. So uh, I, uh, I, I don't have that issue. But I, I recently... Well, through one of the marketing things that I'm involved in, um, met a guy and, and his last couple businesses have strictly been roasting coffee and had a conversation with him about coffee. And and then he's like, let's go to such and such a little coffee shop. And and he's like, well, try this. And it's like, oh, wow. I mean, it, they're, they're talking about a totally different world. And um, you see what capitalism and, and mass marketing has crushed what good coffee really is. Yeah. We drank Folgers and Maxwell house for so many years. We just, we didn't know what good stuff actually tasted like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. How do you take your coffee? You take it black or you put cream in it or. It, it depends upon the day. Um, sometimes a, a little bit of milk, sometimes I, I usually put honey in it because I got lots and lots of honey sitting around. Um, but yeah, so, well, and some days I'll make espresso and, and really, really bitter, nasty things like that. And then some days I want the, you know, the latte with all the crap added that makes it sweet and all that stuff. So, you know, variety, diversity, it's important. We just go between different beans. Every morning, it's like I put the same amount of coffee in the cup, the same amount of cream. We like real heavy cream from mm -hmm. uh, from our friends with uh, up at Born Traegers when we can get it. When it's uh, not when we could get it, we can always get it when we go there. It's getting enough that lasts long enough for a while. So we, we yeah. end up drinking a bunch of uh, a bunch of it from a big box store, but uh, that's okay. 
We try to support our locals when we can. So um, tell me how, how we do soil health in Northeast Colorado without... Um, well, I do it much differently than anybody else. Um, and I, I've been told I do it much differently than anybody else outside of Northeast Colorado. Uh, our operation, I farm with my, my parents um, and my wife. We're trying to bring my stepson in uh, if, if I can get a couple things to go. But it's a highly diverse rotation. We have 2,200 acres of dry land. And when I say dry land, it, you know, no irrigation whatsoever, which I know some people struggle with. I've actually seen people um, mentally check out of my talks when when they're like, well, so what is your irrigation schedule? And it's like, well, when the good Lord thinks it's it's time, well, we might get some rain. And uh, so it can be really challenging with that. Um, but we have a highly diverse rotation. Uh, we're this year, well, it was 10 crops. Now it's 11 crops because I think I found some seed that I've been looking for. Um, Last year was 14 crops. We've been as high as 18 crops um, and rotated um, with the design uh, based upon some research that I found out of USDA and ARS by Randy Anderson. Uh, he's retired now, but he was a, a he wrote tons and tons of paper and, and had some really good research that of course disappeared when he retired and, and hasn't been followed on, but um, it's, you know, we use that and then we try to add some other little flavors of stuff and doing different soil amendments. And I've, you know, I've got a really cool drill. And so my drill allows me to, um, to do stuff that most drills don't. And, you know, but, but in the end, it's still just an air seeder. Um, and, and that, that was my focus when I started doing the whole soil health thing. I got really annoyed with experts from North Dakota and Canada saying, well, this is what you need to do. And it's like, you don't live in Northeast Colorado. You don't, you don't know what it's like. I mean, la last year we had four and a half inches of rain, a precip, four and a half inches of precip. The total? previous year, total. And the previous year we had 22 inches, but it came between, it started at, with nine and a third inches on the 28th, going into the morning of the 29th of April, and it ended on the 15th of June. So it probably went down the creek. Um, well, a lot of the neighbors went into our fields and, and uh, soaked in. Did they give you another um, topsoil too? Oh, oh, of course. And they also sent their weed seed and um, their their nitrogen uh, because we've been fighting Palmer amaranth since then. And the Palmer is where it, where the water ran is where the, the, the worst of the Palmer is. Well, Palmer is responsive to nitrogen, to high nitrogen levels. Well, we don't use hardly any fertilizer. I mean, with our rotation, and, and that's, you know, Randy's work was focusing on using rotation to reduce herbicides. Well, you can use the exact same thing to help reduce fertilizer usage. So we're down 
over 75% on the, the herbicides that we use and the fertilizers that we use. And I was talking to my dad yesterday about, you know, budgeting on some stuff because we, we have a crop chart that we develop every year and um, it's got, now it's got 23 years of history on it. And, um, you know, he's like, so are you settled on where things are? And I'm like, I, I'm pretty good. But I said, it really doesn't matter though, because most of the stuff gets 20 pounds of AMS and 20 pounds of 40 rock, which is a phosphorus. And so, and that's it. What's and AMS for those? AMS is uh, ammonium sulfate. It's a form of nitrogen that carries, it almost has the same amount of sulfur in it as it does nitrogen. And uh, our soils are really devoid in sulfur. And since they pulled sulfur out of diesel fuel, yeah, we don't have acid rain as much anymore, but we also don't get free sulfur. Um, so, you know, that that's why we've gone to that. And and that really came from, I was invited to a organic grower day. I still have no clue how I got on their mailing list. Um, I was the only conventional guy there, but these presenters started talking about stuff and it's like, wow, these guys know way more than what I ever guessed that they did. And then it makes sense though, because they don't have chemistry to bail them out when they get into trouble. They have to be on top of it. Good ones, good organic farmers have to be on top of it from, from day one. Um, you know, bad organic farmers, they could care less. We can, we can talk about some of them later. Yes. Uh, so are, are you worried about there being, you know, you said you had seeds washing in for the neighbor, Palmer Amaranth, which I call pigweed, which, you know, makes the cows love it. It's super yes. protein. It's great stuff. Um, but I can understand how it can be a problem in some crop fields because, you know, it is a big, tough stem. It's a big plant and it's got a big, thick root. Um, so are you worried about like getting residual herbicide load from some of that soil washing in from the neighbors? Um, a little, but not, not, a, not too much. The reason is, is, um, my neighbors aren't really creative. And so, uh, they pretty much use glyphosate, germoxone, 2,4-D, and Banville. And those, they do affect some of our crops, um, if, the, if they're sprayed on the crop, it'll kill them, but it doesn't have a huge impact on um, the growth of that crop when it's in the soil. And our soils are, are healthy and very active. And what people don't realize is, is there's actually bacteria that have been identified that will eat those specific chemicals and it's it, it's just like anybody's job. If you give them too much to eat, well, they can't do it all, and that's when you start getting problems. But if you give them a little bit, well, that they they digest it and it disappears from the system, and and that's the problem. In the past, is everybody was dumping on, you know, when I say dump on, um, it's not huge amounts, but it's still, if you use less, it's better. And it gives your microbes a chance to digest it all. And that's kind of what we wanted to move away from was just the standard everyday thing. 
um, like all of our neighbors are doing. And, and our biggest two costs on the farm were fertilizer and, and herbicides. And so we wanted to reduce that because if you don't spend money, it's a whole lot easier to be profitable. And, um, you know, so I'm not worried about something running off the field, off the neighbors that will just wipe out, you know, sterilize my soil. Um, I'm more worried about the, the, the Palmer, to be honest with you, and the nitrogen, uh, because, you know, Palmer's a pain to control. And, and that's one reason why we got our electro weeder is, you know, we can't control Palmer and dry edible beans. So, um, I'm instead get a piece of electro weeder. Yeah. It's, um, the weed zapper.com is, is the, the website for it. Um, some guys in Missouri, um, it's, it's, it's a giant tractor mounted generator, uh, 225,000 Watts, uh, at 480. So it's putting out 323 amps. Um, that feeds a hundred KVA transformer. Um, and, and that transformer is, is about the size of a 30 gallon drum. I mean, the, the, it's huge. Um, and that that feeds an electrode bar that's mounted on the front of the tractor. Um, and anything that touches that bar is dead. Uh, something about 15,000 volts tends to shorten the life expectancy of stuff. Um, and if you're not careful when you're zapping weeds with it, uh, you can overamp it. You can literally blow weeds in half. Uh, the problem is, is then the bottom part doesn't die. It's, okay. So it's it's cool to watch, but it's not effective. Um, so you you turn down the amperage a little bit, and uh, it does a beautiful job in in things like dry edible beans. We've done custom work in sugar beets and uh, organic uh, millet. We have a neighbor that's that's organic, and um, he he needed some help on a millet field, and uh, it's it's a beautiful thing. I love it. Uh, I you know I I always say that the regenerative practices that we use on our farm were designed that you don't need any special equipment. And then people look at it and go, uh, you have a weed zapper. And it's like, yeah, I have a weed zapper because everything that we're doing is profitable enough that I get to go out and buy toys now. And, you know, my, my toys shoot bolts of lightning um, into weeds. So it's all good. Sorry, I was just sitting here like envisioning you like in a Zeus outfit out there riding around on your tractor zapping weeds with lightning bolts. Um, yeah, not quite, but uh, it it is really cool to watch, and I I know I've posted videos on on our social media stuff. I I probably should get some on on up on YouTube because it's fun to watch i mean it's it's really cool and and a little scary just talk to our uh our buddy jay young <laughs> about youtube he's he's starting to get it figured out i need to go take some pointers from him too yeah yeah he well he's been he's been pushing me and of course my wife's like you should do that you should do that and it's like Man, i know what will happen when i get started well then it's going to be added on to all the other fun stuff that i get to do I know how exactly how that feels. And to be honest with you, I'm the laziest person you've ever met. And so that 
adding extra work just doesn't fit in with that. And and people don't believe me, but if you ask my wife, she'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, he's lazy. I don't mind like creating the content. A lot of times is the easy part, like just doing this, yeah. getting it ready for release. That's, that's what I need help with. Like show notes, you know, break it down into like segments. Like, you know, we talked about this from 1545 to, you know, 3118. That's what I need help with. And, and I just don't, I'll be honest, I don't have time to do it. So I don't. So it's just, yeah, minimum, Throw it out there. yeah, minimum editing, minimum production, which is why, you know, this podcast format, it kind of really suits me because I'm a little on the lazy side too. Yeah, yeah you know. So um, you were starting to talk about, uh, you know, Randy Anderson and managing nutrients and weed pressure with different crops and crop rotation. You said you have like 10 to 14 different, you've grown 10 to 14 different crops. He said, what, 10 so far, getting ready to do 11 for what? this year? This year, the plan is currently 11. Um, last year was 14. A couple of years ago, we were as high as 18. I, I, I'm just like, I'm I'm trying to work this out in my head that, you know, you've got 18 different crops on 2,200 acres, so, or, you know, 10 on 2,200 acres, so your field size, like it, it, it seems like you do a lot of a bunch of little stuff. Um, yeah, it will... Our fields generally are either 80s or, or 160, so quarters or half half quarters. Um, and so there's not an equal amount of each thing. And that's part of the problem is, is figuring out, it's a bit of a shell game of, well, if these acres go here, well, then I'm short on this crop because I've got a contract for that. Or um, and, and it's gotten to the point where I've told my parents, it's like, I'd be a lot better off if we had another thousand acres. It'd make my life a whole lot easier, but it really wouldn't because I would just add more crops um, be, because that's the insanity that, that I, I work with. Now, the flip side of it is it actually makes farming easier because before when, you know, when I took over the operation, we were in standard operation and we'd have 700 acres a week. Well, I can't harvest 700 acres of wheat by myself. So we would hire a custom cutter crew and that's $40,000. Um, and every time we go to the bank after harvest to borrow the money to cover the check, the banker would be like, well, this would be a really nice down payment on a combine. Well, yeah, but we can't cover 700 acres, you know, with the manpower we have. So by doing all these different crops, the biggest crop that we have, well, Camelina is our biggest this year. Um, cause I was going after some extra bonuses in the contract We're about 650 acres on Camelina this year, but most of our crops are 160 to 200 acres. Some are as low as 40. We got one field that'll be five this year of a, something new that we're trying. Um, and so in any given day, it's like, well, I need to go out and drill pinno beans. It's like, well, I got 40 acres of pinno beans this year with the air seeder I have. I'll be done in five hours, you know, and, and that's what I have to do that day. And when it's time to harvest pinno beans, I can cut 40 acres in a day. And so it's not like I have like these weak marathons that everything is absolutely slammed and we're pushing really hard to get stuff done and 
working late and getting up early and um that's super stressful and it's really hard on people and and when people don't get enough sleep um when they're jerks they become really big jerks uh and i tend to be a bit of a jerk so uh i i prefer to stay away from that situation where i rip somebody a new one over some stupid little thing uh and and save those talks for times when they really deserve it um and it's something that's a matter of life and death so you know it it actually kind of came to a head this last summer my I got over to my folks and I always go in the house first and, you know, talk to my parents and kind of fill them in what's going on and this, that, and the other, and what strange phone calls I've had and, you know, what different marketing opportunities have popped out of the woodwork. And I come in one day and my mom's like, you know, you're showing up here later and later. She goes, it's 10 o'clock and you just showed up. And I'm like, yeah. And, and she's like, and you, you know, when the when the sun starts going down you're already gone and i said yeah but are we behind she's like no she goes i think we're actually a little bit ahead of where we usually are and it's like then why does it matter you know her father was up before dawn and he worked until dark and he did that every day during the growing season and uh of course some of the time he went to, he was a snowbird and they went went down to Texas or Arizona for the winter. But when he was around for the winter, they had cattle you got to take care of. And I mean, it's a lot of work. And that's what she grew up seeing. And that's what she watched her husband do. And then her son comes loafing in at 10 o'clock in the morning and not in a big hurry. And, you know, if I'm in the field by noon, I can, I can knock out 160 acres um, with the drill and in that time. And, the only time I get going early to work at ten o'clock with their coffee and their flip flops. Well, I don't wear flip flops. You know, I, I the whole thing between your toes just drives me nuts. You so like I, I, I Birkenstocks. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't work in Crocs either. I can't can't stand them. Flip flops, flip flops are a hard no. I'll do slides, I'll do slippers. Flip flops are a hard no. Yeah. So with with so many crops, like I do want to dive into marketing, but I'm not sure I want to want to really Start dive you. into that that one yet. Um, I guess maybe talk a little bit about how you're managing managing your soil health and your fertility in an extremely dry system without irrigation, and especially without livestock, because that's one of the things that we keep hearing is we have to return livestock to the land. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule like everything else in the lot like everything else in the world. It's a very good guideline and I'm just curious to know how you're managing your soil health and your soil fertility without livestock. Um well, you see when I started this whole soil health journey, um as my mother will attest, I don't take direction very well. And uh, that was the thing is you have to do livestock, you have to do cover crops. And that's why I also give a presentation of don't tell me how to do soil health uh, because in there I talk about why I don't do, you know, livestock and why I don't do cover crops. Um, but 
to me, the, the piece that really drove this whole thing home is we started doing the Haney test uh, back in 2017 was the first one we ever ran. Um, we ran some of the farm in 2018, and then we run everything every year since then. And um, we started getting these test results where these two fields were side by side. And one of them would have a soil health score of 12. And the next one to it would have a soil health score of 10. And it's like, okay, when we pull samples, we do sampling in a, in a pattern that is based on the agronomist GPS. So we pulls it from the same area every year. We dump them in a bucket, we mix them up. And so it's kind of that average sample kind of thing. And these two fields that are side by side have the same weather, they have the same soils. The only difference is what crops have been on there. So there's been something in our cropping system that was causing this two point bump in soil health. And my dad asked me, well, what are we gonna do to figure this out? Well, the accounting program that we use, uh, farm business systems out of Alito, Illinois, dad's been using since 1984 and so as they've upgraded the program they just kept updating the the data and back in 1984 it used to be you would close your books at the end of the year and most farm accounting programs would delete all the detail and they would just roll the the balance sheet essentially well fbs decided that they didn't want to do that yeah storage was expensive back then but that data, it's got value, so we need to retain it. And so we actually can go back to 1985 and look at individual transactions and, and look at what we bought at Raleigh's machine shop. And um, so we have this huge database of data that, you know, I, I looked at that and it's like, well, could you produce me a crop history of every field that we have? And you know, every year what was in every field. And and he goes, yeah, I can do that. It's going to take me a little time, but it's not that big a deal. How far back do you want to go? And I said, how does 2000 sound? We went 100% 100% no-till in 99. Um, so I thought going back to 2000, so initially the chart had 17 years on it. Everything that we had in history and then what was currently growing. Um, and that's the chart that I refer to. We update every year. And with that, that started answering some questions and that really pushed us in the direction that we went because those two fields that were side by side, one of them had had sunflowers on it seven years prior. The other hadn't had sunflowers on it. And so it's like, higher soil health score goes with sunflowers being in that field within the last seven years. Wow, sunflowers have a really big effect on soil health. And, you know, dad started raising them in 75 and he quit raising them um, around 2010 because everybody always said they dry out the soil and blah, 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 blah. And everybody's so negative about them. And it's like, well, they dry out the soil because we don't raise them right. We, you know, we never had that problem, but we always drilled them into really good wheat stubble. And so they had good soil cover, so it would retain the moisture. 
over the winter because that wheat stubble would still be in there um, where everybody else, if you go out there and drill it in a bare field, well, then it bakes all summer long, it bakes all winter long, and you lose the moisture. But sunflowers have really deep tap, root, tap roots. They'll go down, they'll go down 20 feet and they'll pull up micronutrients that have leached past everything else. And so they bring it up into that root zone. It's a really fibrous root that takes a long time to break down. And it's like, well, this is why it's affecting our soil health is we've reintroduced micronutrients into that band and we've given them some, some really good plant fiber, some organic matter for them to live on. So there's our answer. So obviously we need sunflowers. And so that is kind of like the first piece. Well, we, we want to reduce the amount of nitrogen we're applying. So let's start raising some legumes because they fix nitrogen. Um, and then I started poking around and <clears throat> but the, it, it's exudates feed a particular family of biology of, of, um, of bacteria the the family are, are called theotrophs, uh, which is Latin for rock eater. So okay. buckwheat exudates feed the bacteria that eat the rock in the soil and they release the phosphorus that's in that rock that plants can't get to. And come to find out they also release manganese. And so we added buckwheat to the rotation. And so we've kind of looked at it as like, well, what do we need? What crop can give us that and we've seen a great response um and then of course you know we we still use a little fertilizer dr christine jones um in the first time i heard her speak which was in the spring of 2017 which is when this whole thing started uh she's all you know your soils if they have good organic matter they can produce nutrients for you but you need a little bio, you need a little to kick off that biology. We don't know why, but you know, 10 pounds at most. So that's what most of our fields get is 10 pounds of nitrogen. Um, and that's between some ammonium sulfate and 40 rock to, to get to that 10 pounds. And we actually are probably a little bit under there. Um, and you know, because a lot of stuff that she was saying was making sense, right up until she said, Well, there's bacteria in the soil that you don't even need a legume that will produce um, nitrogen. And it's like, well, this lady's off a rocker. And then that year we grew a wheat crop that had great quality, high protein, high test weight, decent yield. And I thought that soil is gonna be completely fried after pulling that crop off. And we went out, we did soil tests and we had 110 pounds of residual nitrogen. And it's like, we started with 120 pounds. Um, we pulled a great crop off. Where the heck did this come from? And then it was, oh yeah, Dr. Jones said, you know, that you, there's biology in the soil that can do this and we just have to trust it. And so these little pieces have kind of driven us in these directions to, to test and, um, you know, my... my my father came to the farm in 73 and he worked with his father-in-law and um, 
My father, my, my grandfather fought my father every step of the way when he wanted to innovate. And so my familiar, well, for, for most, yes. Um, and you see, that's where I'm lucky is because my dad had that experience. He remembered how difficult it was. So he told me when I took over that we'll do whatever you want to do, no matter how crazy, as long as you have a market. So don't raise anything without a market. And you have some evidence that it could be profitable, you know, on, on an average year. And so, you know, with that attitude, it's like, okay, well, we need to add legumes. Let's do it. We need to add buckwheat. Let's do it. Of course, the caveat is the market. Um, but dad pretty much stepped back and and um, has has let me go. And, and it's it's been interesting to watch that evolve because the first year of I want to raise field peas, he's like, uh, what do we know about raising field peas? You know, that kind of thing. And it's gotten to the point where I'll go to a conference and I'll come back from a conference and he's like, okay, what are we doing now? You know, what kind of crazy idea did you bring home? And I knew that things had really changed when I come back from a conference. He's like, what's the next crazy thing? I said, we're going to raise rice. And he goes, okay, what's your market? And I was expecting, you know, to watch him erupt. I was like, I was really looking forward to him just losing his mind about raising rice in Northeast Colorado. And he just, okay, what's your market? And it's like, yeah, we've, we've gotten somewhere. Everything I know about raising rice is, okay, the limit of what I know about raising rice is it's done in a rice paddy and they're frequently flooded. So how does that work in Northeast Colorado with no irrigation? Well, when you get nine inches of rain, you just have to time it right. Uh, no. Um, do you know why they flood rice paddies? Um, it, it's either, it's either a weed or a bug pressure, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weed and disease control is why they do it. So, um, rice actually doesn't like to be flooded. It puts the soil in, uh, an anaerobic state. There's no oxygen because it's flooded. And that stresses the rice plant and it causes it to uptake arsenic. So if you hear about arsenic and rice, which there's, I mean, you have to eat like 500 pounds a day for it to ever be an effect or some ridiculous amount. But that's why it's there is because of how it's raised. Rice, there's, I was initially told there's two kinds of rice. There's upland rice and lowland rice. Lowland rice is paddy rice. Upland rice is dryland rice. And nobody ever talks about dryland rice, upland rice. Um, and I was talking to a rice farmer this spring, this this winter, and he's like, "Roy, all rice is upland rice. It's just some varieties can tolerate the flooding, and others can't." And um, so I started doing some research, and come to find out, the water needs of rice are very similar to corn um, for dryland rice. And um, we occasionally can raise a pretty decent corn crop in this area. Um, with the soil health that we have, it's getting a lot easier. We, we failed miserably this last year, but we gave it the old college try. Um, but then, you know, I, I talked to my dad and 
my dad for a period um was on the mission field in, in Africa. My grandfather was a medical missionary and my dad um, went to be the hospital administrator. And part of that was a, a real rehabilitation um, section for people that had uh, lost um, function due to, to leprosy known as Hansen's disease now. Uh, my grandfather was actually on the team that developed the first cure for leprosy. And um, so dad was in sub-Saharan Africa. He was in Northern Nigeria. And there was a wet season where it rained every day. And then there was a dry season where it didn't rain for months. And he thought, well, we raised rice there and we raised it at the end of the dry, of the end of the wet season. And then it matured in the dry season. And so... I don't know why we couldn't raise rice here because if you look at when we get the most of our moisture, our wet season is March, April through June, the first part of July. And then we have our dry season the rest of the year. And he's like, that, that actually makes sense. And so the, the challenge is now getting rice seed. Um, I tested 10 different heirloom varieties last year in my garden. Uh, what an excellent year to choose uh, to raise rice for the first time. Uh, the first thing we learned is rabbits love dryland rice. I think it was because it was the only green thing that was, you know, had a nice juicy leaf. Uh, and man, they ate that stuff off to the ground like three different times. And finally, we got the, the, the garden fenced. And the rice ended up maturing late, uh, right when it was super hot and windy, and it didn't pollinate well, but it, it went ahead and it headed out. It tried. Um, looks like Johnson grass when it's growing. So a nice, wide, leathery leaf, um, you know, beautiful plant. It'd leave awesome residue if you run a stripper header through it. Um, and so... This year, I've got a couple of things working, or I think I might have finally scored enough rice seed that we're going to have five acres of dryland rice in northeast Colorado. Are you going to like save that seed and and keep and keep building that up so you can have more than five acres of rice? Yes, most definitely. Um, interesting thing about rice is is it has the highest multiplication rate of any cereal grain. Um, and I noticed that this last year, man, it tillered like crazy. Um, so one grain of rice on average produces about 150 grains of rice. So right. it's really easy to multiply. Um, it's it's a high yielding crop, uh, especially if you're in good moisture. And that's why if you look uh, where they raise rice on patties, uh, if you watch YouTube videos of them harvesting, it's the biggest combine they can buy with like this little 14, 16 foot header on it. And that combine is just crawling through the field. They always say you should never buy equipment that's been in rice. And I always thought, well, yeah, it's been in water. No, it's rice is high. The, the rice holes are high in silica and there's a huge volume. I mean, they'll, they'll yield 30,000 pounds an acre in some of these areas. And it literally just wears the inside of the combine out. And that's why you don't want to buy a rice machine. Um, so yeah, we're going to keep some of that back. And then of course, some of it 
Uh, I've gotten the lead on a rice hauler uh, and we are working with a restaurant group in Denver that has told me if you raise rice, we will buy it. Um, and, you know, it, it okay. gives I, I got to know if you're only going to do like five acres of rice, how many pounds of rice are you talking about with that to go be able to deal with the restaurant to get rid of that rice crop? Like growing so many crops, like, I can't wait to get into marketing with you because I'm, I'm sure that there's all kinds of rabbit trails to chase, but like, I just got to know, like, okay, five That's acres. That's why I need a bigger farm. Five acres of rice and you got a restaurant in Denver that wants to buy all you can grow. That just, that strikes me as, as strange, but so I'm wondering, like, how much are you planning on growing off that five acres? Well, um, I'm expecting about 2,000 pounds an acre. Um, so that's going to give me 10,000 pounds. Uh, which would be enough to seed 100 acres at 100 pounds an acre. And we do 80s. So if we did an 80 of it, we might do a 40 of it, depending upon how things are going. Um, that leaves me a, a little bit left over. Now, the one thing you have to understand is the restaurant that we're working with in Denver. Um, it's not a food, food restaurant, I'm assuming. It's um, it's a very special restaurant. My my. I took my wife there for her birthday. Um, and the only reason I could take my wife there for her birthday is they wanted to meet the farmer and um, they comped us our meal. And um, otherwise it's about $250 a person. Uh, the food was absolutely incredible. Um, it was seven courses with six matching drink choices that went with that and uh came across a beer that's made in oklahoma that they age it in oak barrels with coffee beans uh vanilla beans and uh cocoa beans and it's this stout that is just my, my wife doesn't like stout beer and she's like we need to get some of this um it, it's absolutely amazing um, but they don't, so they're not looking at a huge quantity. They're not looking at using, you know, 50 pounds of rice a day. They're well, looking at 10,000 pounds is a lot of rice. 10,000 pounds is a lot of rice. I mean, and that's, you know, part of it is, is now if we're trying to feed the world, we can't do it with 10,000 pounds of rice, no. but I can work with a restaurant group that's designing their menu around what I have. And so we can we can work on that. Um, but so yeah, that that's the story of rice in Northeast Colorado. Um, now the the idea isn't as crazy as you think it is. Uh, the National Rice Council has identified Colorado will either be the fourth or fifth largest rice producing state in the nation by 2050. Um, due to what we're seeing in our climate. Um, it could warm enough that wheat will no longer vernalize in Colorado. It won't get cold enough. And where they're currently growing rice, they won't be able to grow anything because it's going to be just so hot. Um, and so that rice production has to move and we need a crop to raise. And, um, you know, there are parts of Colorado that has irrigation either out of the o Ogallala or surface water. Um, you know, that could be turned into some pretty decent rice production. 
or if we can do it in dry land setting and offset that wheat because there's a lot of bushels of wheat that are produced in Colorado on dry land, um, it would be that opportunity. Uh, I just want to get out in front of the curve because that way I'll be known as that guy that did it for the first time ever. And now everybody's doing it. So, you know. Is there anybody else around you trying rice? <laughs> um, I cannot say with 100% certainty, but uh, no. Uh, but my certainty factor is not 100, but it's a number really, really close to 100. I mean, the guy next door that you think is just past his eyeballs in commodity debt with the bank. I mean, you never know what he's got going on behind the shelter belt. Uh, that, that's very true. Um, they're probably growing something a little greener, greener and stinkier than rice uh, in the shelter belt, if that's the case. It is Colorado. It, it, yeah, it is Colorado. I hadn't really thought. My, my brain wasn't there. <laughs> um. So what, is, what are some of the other crops you grow? You mentioned field peas, dry beans, pinto beans, and buckwheat. What are what are some of the other weird things you grow? Um, traditionally, we raise wheat. Um, the funny thing is, is when my folks and I went to the CCTA conference down at Burlington in 2017, when we started, you know, learning these things, when I listened to Lance Gunderson talk about the Haney test, um, we're driving home and I said to my dad, you know, if we want to look at some more diversity, there'd be a day that we're not going to raise wheat. And my dad laughed and said, yeah, that'll be the day. Um, we don't have any wheat this year. Uh, and I, I thought it might take a little bit longer than five, six years, but no, it didn't. Uh, so we're also raising oats, buckwheat, uh, non-GMO corn, grain sorghum, we call it milo, uh, sunflowers, millet, pinto beans, chickpeas, flax, black-eyed peas, black beans, we mentioned field peas, and then camelina. Um, and, you know, we've raised a couple other things that are like, yeah, that's, that, that doesn't work very well here, or, um, you know, just not happy with what I'm seeing in terms of residue or just just not liking it or I just don't have room. Um, that That's the biggest challenge with 2,200 acres. I really need another thousand acres, a couple thousand acres uh, to really build out the rotation to what I would want out of it. Um, but uh, when when I came back to the farm, there in the fall of 2016, uh, my grandmother had passed away the year prior. My parents became the landlords and we had a bunch of unencumbered land. And my parents said, well, do you want to go buy more land? And uh, my response was no. Um, it doesn't make a sense if we go buy more land because we're losing money on what we got. So we're going to go buy more land so we can lose more money. I said, I want to be profitable. I want to be profitable with what we have uh, before we, we start to expand. Because that way, when we expand, um, the expansion is being paid for, not financed necessarily. Or if it is financed, we know exactly how we're going to pay it off. I bet you wish you could buy it at the land prices it was in 1617. Um, yeah, but at the same time, when you start seeing the increase in revenue that we are, 
um, the land price isn't, isn't near as bad as what you thought it was. Um, you know, we we literally took our uh, gross revenue and and we have turned it into our net revenue. Um, and so when people ask me, is regenerative agriculture, is practicing soil health profitable? It's like, oh, it's fun. It's that profitable. I mean, I, I went out and I bought a $70,000 weed zapper because I could, you know. Um, you know, we did finance it, finance it, to be completely honest, but that conversation with the banker went, my folks and I went into the bank, we sat in the loan officer's office and we said, we're thinking about buying this piece of equipment. Here's the reason why. Here's the website. And he goes and he watches a video on the website and he goes, well, that's interesting. Well, how much does it cost? I said, well, at the time, all, all, the, all in, we were about 70000 and he's making some notes on the desk and well, how much down? And, you know, oh, we probably 10. And he's just, you know, making some notes. And uh, we then went on to talk about all kinds of other things because we don't keep secrets from our banker. Um, you know, we figure he needs to know how we're spending his money because we quit farming with ours a long time ago. Um, and went through this and we we got up to leave and he looks down at that piece of paper and he said well the loan committee meets tomorrow i'll take it to him he goes i don't see any problems and it's like we were just coming to find out what kind of loan rates you were offering um we we weren't even totally convinced we were going to buy it yet but okay well if if you're down with it then that's that that's cool um but that's that's because we have proven ourselves in in what we're doing and you know reducing the inputs makes a big difference this year uh with you know my grandfather bought the farm in 50 um i'd like to buy a land a lot of land at the prices that he paid because we're talking like 25 bucks an acre um nice. yeah but um you know my my mom grew up on this farm and has always been connected with it and this last year was the driest year ever for this farm um it was probably if it wasn't the hottest it was darn close to it if it wasn't the windiest it was darn close to it um and we went and met with our accountant at the end of the year and he runs the numbers and he's like if it wasn't for depreciation, you'd be paying taxes this year. And so we broke even, thanks to depreciation, um, on the driest year in the history of the farm. And when I started putting the, these ideas together and, and looking at the marketing stuff and the crop diversity and what it was going to do in terms of uh, nutrients and, and chemical usage, I went to my dad and I said, well, I, I've, I've, you know, got a, an idea of what, what I, I think we're going to do, but there's something that you're going to have to get used to. And he said, well, what's that? And I said, well, you're going to have to get used to paying taxes because before we were the average dry land farm in Northeast Colorado, where your goal is to break even, um, and you work an off-farm job because that's what you do 
to to live um we're i'm paid on salary and we are showing profitability we are looking at bringing in my stepson to be a tractor jockey initially to teach him farming um and looking at it like you know it actually cash flows a couple of years ago with all the different things that we were doing um my dad one day stopped and looks at me and goes so how many employees are we going to have in five years and i looked at him and without really putting much thought to it i said five um well we have a hired man that we uh it's it's a very unique uh situation we're blessed to have him uh we're looking at adding justin uh his fiance has a unique set of skills that uh, might fit really well into what we're doing on our marketing and things that we're raising. So there's three, you know, and if I count myself, cause I'm actually getting paid, there's four. Um, it's, it's really different. It's sometimes looking back at it. It's really hard to comprehend how all this stuff has, has come together and has done what I envisioned it doing. Yep. And I was just sitting here thinking that, you know, if you had a neighbor that had the same acreage you did, that'd probably be, that'd probably be just like you described. He'd probably be barely scraping by 2022 drought, heat, wind. Oh yeah. I felt it. I didn't make any money. Like I, I took a loss of 22. I'm not going to, not going to be ashamed of that. Uh, and I was talking to my dad and there were three years while he was around the ranch that he didn't turn profit and make money. And they were all really bad drought years. So, you know, I think about the guy that's next to you that's got the same size, that's on the same same land base. He's working a town job for the insurance and money to survive, pay the house bills, and the farm barely breaks even year after year after year. And here you are trying to expand, looking to buy more acres, even at current market price, which I feel is horribly overvalued no matter where you are in the plains. Like everything is just so horribly overvalued. You're talking about adding acres and adding employees to expand. Um, And I think the key to that, the key to that is all marketing. You know, growing stuff like camelina and buckwheat and dry beans and field peas and, you know, five acres of rice that's going to be profitable. You know, I know guys that would plant five acres of something as an experiment and just write the cost off to see if it worked. It, it, it's wild that you can do that and have a, have a market outlet. So I, let, let's go ahead and swing into marketing. How do you get rid of some of these things like, you know, like pinto beans? Well, area that doesn't grow pinto beans. The, the the funny thing is, um, you know, when I, the average farmer, you talk to him about raising something different. He goes, well, I can't do it. And the reason why is there's no markets. There's right. nothing nearby. I mean, that, take that. Exactly. Um, no, won't take it. And, and that is the exact world that I lived in six years ago. Um, and I believe the exact same thing. I thought there are no markets out there. Um but a, a book that that I read and I and I spent 
a lot of time working through is seven habits of highly effective people. Um, and one thing that they talk about in seven habits is mentality. Um, because really that's the only thing you really can control is what's going on between your ears. Um, you know, the rest of the world, we think we have some control and, and then we learn that we don't and everything falls apart. And the only thing we have to control at that point is, is that, um, you know, I, I went through, through some pretty rough times, uh, personally, and, um, that's when I, I worked through that book. And when I come out the other side, I had a very different attitude. And one of the things that they talk about in that book was, um, you know, th that attitude of scarcity, that there's not enough. And, um, and you see that in agriculture, where if you do find a market, boy, you hold on to that little piece as hard as you can. Um, I have a, a good friend, uh, Mike D, um, and I told him every time I'm going to tell this story, I'm going to give him credit because it, it really drove a point home. And Mike at the time worked for Arden Mills. He was well up in the company. And we were talking one day and he goes, Roy, I don't understand farmers. And I was like, Mike, what don't you understand? about farmers, because let's be honest, we're actually a pretty simple lot. Um, you know, we, they're, they're not too much to us that, that should confuse a person. And he said, Roy, what, what I don't understand is, is they spend every day fighting over the same piece of the pie and they live in the damn bakery. And it's like, you're absolutely right, Mike. I had never looked at it that way. You know, farmers say, well, I have to raise corn. Well, do you have to? Or do you raise corn because it's easy and that's what you've always done? So my mentality changed through what, you know, my, my experiences to the, the mentality of abundance of there's enough for everyone. There's more than enough for everyone. And when people challenged me on that, I said, when was the last time you've been to Denver? Because that's our closest big city. You know, Denver is 50 miles closer to the farm now than it was when I was a kid. And it's not because we moved, it's because it grew. And it's not stopping growing. Um, I mean, people have learned that Colorado has beautiful weather. Uh, even in the middle of winter, it's very rare that we've been as cold as we've been for as long as we've been. Um, it's very rare that we have snow laying on the ground uh, for more than a week. And there's 3 million people on the front range now. And those 3 million people, last time I checked, they they eat and they like to eat. Um and they like to eat a lot of different things. You know, we I talked about going to that super fancy restaurant. Uh, they designed their menu this uh, winter around buckwheat and everything in that servings had buckwheat in it in one, one form or another. And I had never had buckwheat in that many forms and I had never had buckwheat that was so delicious. 
I mean, the the closing aspartame was buckwheat tea, toasted buckwheat tea, soba tea. It was absolutely freaking amazing. And, you know, after that meal and feeling kind of full, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot in each course, but there were seven courses. Um, and I was feeling kind of full and I drank that buckwheat tea and it was like, my system's like, okay, we're satisfied. And that feeling of fullness, I felt full, but I wasn't like stuffed um, because that buckwheat tea helped my digestion. But these people like different things. They don't eat just corn because the corn that we raise doesn't go to people for the most part. Um, it's processed through a, you know, a, a refined uh, biological process, you know, called like a cow. Um, yep. And I just like, I'll pause you for a second. That's a great point. And I have it written down here, like 98% of the corn grown in the United States is for livestock feed. It's just that 2% that we get our popcorn, our sweet corn, our canned corn, the creamed corn, corn on a cob, like 2% of the corn acres. So, you know, y'all listeners, think about that when you're driving past all these cornfields you see. Only 2% of the corn grown in the United States actually goes to humans. Another interesting number, um, and I'm probably going to misquote this a little bit. Kansas grows about 4,000 acres of red potatoes. That's over 10% of the nation's red potato crop. I had no idea that we grew 10% of the nation's red potato crop in Kansas, but it only takes 4,000 acres. Like, I could travel the state for the rest of my life and not drive by a damn potato field. So it that does kind of put things in perspective when we're talking about, you know, five acres of rice or 100 acres of camelina or 100 acres of dry beans. Like, you know, 10,000 pounds of rice sounds like a lot of rice. It's probably like a restaurant-sized quantity of rice for them to operate on in a season. But 10,000 pounds of rice to you and me, I mean, that's like rice for the rest of our lives. Well, and, you know, we, we do farm tours. And part of our farm tours is, um, you know, we, we start out at the grain bins. And we have the grain bins that my dad put up in 1980. It's about 32,000 bushel. And I, I talk with the people about, let's do some just really quick and dirty math. So 30,000 bushels and a bushel of wheat will make 60 loaves of really crappy bread. So, and that's most of the bread that people eat is the really refined white stuff. Um, and so 30,000 loaves, 60,000 bushels. Well, that gives us um, about 1.8 million loaves of bread. That's a lot of bread. That, I mean, that's a lot of bread. But if I took that bread to Denver, that would be a loaf for maybe one in every two households. So half the people would get a loaf of bread. For one and day. That's for one, yeah. And that loaf of bread will last them maybe a week. Um, We cannot comprehend the volume of food that is consumed in our nation on a daily basis. We're not talking about for the whole year. We're just talking about one day. And I, you know, COVID 
it, it was bad, but there are some things that came out of COVID that were really invaluable. One of them was people realizing the value of abundant food. And it's okay to be picky about the food that you eat because it's not, it's something that should be treasured. I mean, we Americans have the cheapest food in the world. We have the most abundant food in the world. We don't have the healthiest food in the world, but the reason is, is how it's being farmed. And that's what, that's why we do what we do is we are trying to change how that food is raised to make it healthier. Um, it doesn't need to be as, as abundant. We don't need everything that we have. And if our food is healthier, we won't eat as much because our bodies will be satisfied. And, and that's why people continue to eat and eat and eat when they're full because their body's like, I need some some this one particular thing. And you need to keep eating because I need it. And, you know, our customers with our direct marketing stuff, they'll tell us that, well, I used to be, I would cook up a cup of beans and our family would eat that at a meal. We cook up a cup of your beans. And first of all, they taste way better than the dry beans that we bought in the store. And it's like, well, a dry beans, a dry bean, right? Um, they taste better. But we only eat half of them because we eat that half and we're full. And so that is the whole point of soil health of regenerative farming is to increase that nutrition. And suddenly we don't need to raise as much as we were and we can raise more things. We have more diversity um, is, is because of how it's raised. It actually makes us the healthier people. I've, I've made the comment before and I'll, I'll stand with it of, obesity in this nation can be solved with regenerative agriculture. I I agree. I agree. Um, reason why we're not going to see that pushed like on a real high level or pushed to a uh, push to the, the degree that it should. It seems like there's a bunch of lawmakers that are invested in pharmaceutical corporations that like to make insulin. Like, there's there's no money in curing diabetes. There's no money in in teaching people how to eat better so they don't develop health problems later in life. But there is piles and piles of money made to be treat in treating quote chronic disease that really let's be honest, a lot of it's pre preventable. Adult onset diabetes would go away if we got rid of corn subsidies. Okay, maybe that's a stretch, but if we quit putting high fructose corn syrup in everything and adding sugar and salt to everything, that'd be step one. Step two, like let's get rid of the en enriched wheat flour. You know, let, let's get rid of all, all the crap that's enriched and go back to whole grains and let's see what happens then. Yeah. You know, and commodity agriculture, industrial agriculture, the, the whole... Earl Butts model, get big or get out. We got to feed the world. Man, I, I think that I think that is crumbling. You well, know. you know, one thing that I I try to bring up in, in my talks is the most important mentality change a farmer can make is the day that they realize that everything they grow 
is food. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems logical, but um, I, I have a, a good friend I was talking with about this. He worked in a grocery store uh, through high school and college. And every night, his, part of his job was to count all the cash drawers. And he said, Roy, I would sit down and I would count $10,000 in cash a night. And to me, that wasn't the same thing as the $5 bill in my pocket. And to a farmer, that semi-load of wheat is not related to that loaf of bread because of the, the processing and the distance we are from that processing. We've lost that knowledge. And, you know, I in one of my talks, it was, it was a local talk, um, and I made that comment that everything that we raise is food. And I was contacted on Twitter that night by an individual that was there um, that I know. Um, he, he, he's a good farmer, a lot of respect for him. Um, and he said, Roy, I've been sitting here for the last hour and a half, wrapping my head around that everything we raise is food. Because I have never thought about what I raised as food. And you're like, okay, well, you know, you can see that. He raises kidney beans. What use is there for kidney beans other than food? You know? Chili. That's that's about it. Yeah. I mean, and my thought was, you've never taken a bucket full out of the truck home and cooked it? You know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I grew up poor enough where you had to learn how to eat some stuff like that. But um, that that change in mentality is is vital. Um, Ray Archuleta, um, in his his talk in Lakin, was talking about what's the hardest thing on the farm, and the hardest thing on the farm is not compacted soil. It's the farmer's mind. And once we learn to loosen that and create fertile ground between the farmer's ears, well, then we're going to have fertile ground everywhere else. Um, I, I and that's what I do. The exact do. quote is, the only compaction problem on the farm is compaction of the mind. Yes. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's why I, I get out and talk about what we're doing is, is, trying to show people that this can be done. And yeah, uh, we're an extreme case, but I also tell people, take from this what will work for you and adapt it. Don't try to copy what I'm doing. I guarantee you the neighbor across the road can't do the exact same thing that we're doing. And the reason is because is the land is different. Every piece of land is unique because it has its own history. And, you know, we we illustrated that when we started doing the Haney test and we had two fields side by side, that the only difference was their history and it made a difference in that field and how it would respond to different farming methods. Um, so that that is, you know, the, the big thing is farmers have to find their way and the other half of that goes, the consumers have to find their way. Because 
a farmer's not going to raise anything that he can't sell. And so the consumer has to be able to step up and be like, well, I'd, I'd really like to buy pinot beans that are growing in Colorado. There's actually a fair number of pinot beans growing in Colorado. Uh, they're actually under irrigation. Um, but and I, like Rocky Ford. That No, up in this area. I, well, I know that like down around Rocky Ford, yeah. you know, going back and forth, uh, you know, the Pueblo, Colorado Springs area and going out to Southwest Colorado to ride in the mountains, you know, all down highway 400 around Rocky Ford, it's melons, cantaloupes and beans. Yep. And the, in my mind, beans require a lot of water. That's just how I was raised. Because the only time I ever saw them growing was under a pivot. Or if I have them in my garden, well, I water my garden. Um, that's not the case. Legumes are actually the dry edible beans, pinot beans, uh, black-eyed peas, black beans. They are tough. Man, as long as they don't get a freeze, that's the one thing that slows them down is cold. But this last summer, hardly any moisture. We got we had beautiful stands of stuff this last year. I wish it had rained, but at the same time, it was better than it didn't because I learned so much from this this year. Um, they they just sat out there in the field and stayed alive. And the twenty first of September, we got an inch and a half of rain. And immediately those beans started blooming and they started setting pods. And of course it froze two weeks later, but if it hadn't froze, they would have made, they would have made a crop on that one rain that they were waiting on. Um, you know, I'm, I was the president of the local farmers union chapter and I passed that on to my, my stepson. Um, but Back in 2019, everybody was complaining about how rough farming was. And it's 2019 was the last good year we all had. Well, but that's when prices were in the tank, you know, and it there was the tariff stuff and all those different things. And people were complaining. And a buddy of mine that worked for Farmers Union said, Roy, what we should do is get a bunch of old timers together and have them talk about tough times in farming. So we we searched out and we found six fellas and they brought their wives and the youngest was 85. The nice. oldest was in his 90s. And the meeting started, I think it was either 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the evening. Um, because these are some old timers, they go to bed early and had a hard time getting them started. They're like, well, what do you want us to talk about? And it's like, okay, Tell us about your first crop. And that's all it took. And it was off to the races that came out and the crops that they raised out here. They raised dry land beans. During World War II, the government required farmers to raise dry beans on a portion of their farm because that's what they used to feed the troops. And, you know, then the wives talked about, well, did you guys go out into the, the bean fields and pick the green pods? And they canned them as green beans. Um, and, and it was like, 
everybody raised dry land edible beans back in the 40s? Well, th this, you know, this is new. Well, no, it's not. This is something that's forgotten. And, you know, they talked about how they would raise flax for cattle feed because corn didn't do so hot because it was before all the advancements in, in corn genetics and, and methods. They talked about how, you know, clover was one of the most common crops grown in Northeast Colorado because the guys would raise clover till about the middle of summer and then they'd work it in the ground and, and that's how they got nitrogen for their wheat that winter. And it's like, well, crap, you know, I ain't doing nothing new. All I'm doing is I'm the first one to the pile of knowledge of this is how we used to do it and it still works. And you don't need all these inputs. So, you know, the, the, the dry beans fit our climate. And, you know, getting back to marketing, when I started wanting to raise these things, dad goes, well, where are you going to sell them? And it's like, well, I don't know. And I got out something it's called the Yellow Pages. Um, they still occasionally, you can find copies of them. I haven't seen one of those in years. And I opened it up and there are six bean companies within a hundred miles of the farm. And now when it comes to harvest, I raise my beans without a contract, which is crazy because when I first started doing it, everything was contracted. Now I'll harvest it and I'll call up the different bean companies. I'll tell them, you know, I have Palomino, a variety of pinot beans. It's a slow darkening pinot. This is how much I have. What do you offer me? And I'll call each bean company and I'll take kind of what their bid is. And the one that gives me the best price, that's where I go with it. Mind you, we set aside some for direct sales. Um, and we set aside stuff for seed. We find varieties that we can legally hold back for seed. Um, and, but in my mind, there's no market. There's no market for other crops. So I started with that mentality. I started with that scarcity of I got to keep every little piece that I have. And the more I do this, I, I joke now I can go to the fridge and get out the jug of milk and there's another market behind the jug of milk. Um, I get phone calls on a regular basis of companies looking for specific things. I get, I got a phone call from a company in Canada looking for buckwheat this last fall. Our buckwheat crop died. I actually apologized to my parents for the buckwheat crop dying. Um, and my mom looks at me and goes, well, that's okay. We just raised a cover crop this year. And, you know, for that mentality to be in place from the traditional mentality that we started with five, six years ago. That's a pretty impressive growth on, on the farmer side. But, you know, these people from Canada call me and I'm like, well, how much buckwheat are you looking for? Just if I find some, he goes, well, we'd like 300 metric tons. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, I, I can raise that in like three years if we're lucky. Um, but there's the demand for it. It's just farmers, they like to push the easy button. And, you know, the relationship that they have with the food that they produce generally ends at the trap or the tailgate of the truck 
when it goes to the grain elevator. They, you know, the guy at the elevator opens that up. It gets dumped into the pit. It gets elevated into these giant bins where it's mixed with everything else. And that's it. It's gone. It's no longer that loaf of bread that sits in the kitchen. And so getting farmers to recognize that and see that is huge. Um, and, and that's why my wife and I are, are working on developing a marketing workbook for farmers to work through just to get them to see the possibilities and, and to develop what their story is. Because with the millennials, the most valuable thing that a farmer has is their story. Yes. You know, when, when we create packaging on our mixes, I know that every single word on that package will be read by somebody under the age of 40. And they care about their food, where it comes from. You know, can they meet the person? Um, and it really it really changes who they are and how they interact with their food compared to their parents. And this, I, I, my wife and I went to the farm show in Greeley um, this last week. She had never been. The Colorado Department of Ag had a get together for the star program producers. So we went up for that. We stayed the night and I told my wife, um, you know, take another day off work. Because uh, she does work a, a decent job. That's where our insurance comes from. Um, take a day off work. We're going to go to the farm show because I've talked about it, but you'd never been. And so we went to the farm show and we're walking up and down the aisles of all the different shiny things that we have either no need for or, or really can't afford or or don't want to afford. Um, and we're walking down this aisle and this woman who's working a booth points at me and goes you're Roy Falscraft <laughs> and it's like um yeah yeah I am um who are you and you know she's working a booth for Colorado State University um I'm not even sure what they were talking about there um but she goes, well, my Eric, my, my boyfriend's Eric. He's the one of the camera crew on the documentary that came to the farm last year. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I know Eric. And I said, I looked at her and I said, so you're Eric's girlfriend that is um, celiacs that can only eat gluten-free. And she goes, yeah. She goes, I love your gluten-free mixes. I drive to Wheat Ridge twice a month to pick up mixes from the farmer's market that we're at down there. And for, for those of you that have not had the opportunity to drive from Fort Collins, Colorado to Wheat Ridge, Colorado, it's down I-25. Um, I've heard right that- the Platte River, right? Uh, no, that, that's I-76. Okay. So, so I-25, is it's parallel to the mountains. It runs, well, way north of Cheyenne, down, to Albuquerque. Um, and that ribbon of death, Mad Max would would have nightmares going down. I mean, it is a, a, a rough drive. There's construction like every other mile. So there's lane changes, people aren't paying attention. 
Um, and it's all run at 70, 80 miles an hour and immediately comes to a stop and turns into a parking lot because of some accident. So it's not I, I, pleasant. Yes, yes. <laughs> the stretch between Pueblo and the Springs is bad enough. Like yeah, the yeah. between the Springs and Denver, yeah, I'll go around. Thank you. Yeah, and, and the stretch from Denver to Fort Collins is as bad as Denver to Colorado Springs. I mean, it's it is not a healthy drive. This woman will make the drive twice a month to go buy our mixes because she knows where they came from. She has a dietary issue that we fit into that we address and they're delicious that people that aren't gluten-free can eat them and not realize that it they didn't have something that had gluten in it um but but yeah it's farmers change people's lives by the food that they raise and this isn't the first time that we have had an experience similar to that of where people value us because of the food we raise and the diversity we have. And that's why we do the marketing thing is there's 3 million people in Denver. I can't feed them with my 2000 acres. I need everybody else helping me do that. And we all can be live in abundance. We all can be comfortable. Our children can come back to the farm. I was talking, oh, 15 years ago with the president of Viero, which is a, a phone company that was founded in Fort Morgan, Colorado. It's now expanding across the plains. And I was talking with the, the, the president and I was talking with him about growing a business in rural Colorado. And he said, you know, the hardest part about it isn't customers. The hardest part about it is employees because the biggest export that we have in Northeast Colorado is not commodities, it's our children. Because our children go to Denver, they go to college, they get an education, they become engineers and doctors and, and they do very successful things. Part of the reason is because they grew up on a farm and they have work ethic and they, you know, they see the value in that. He says, do you know how hard it is to grow a company with the bottom one third of the graduating class? And he's, he's right. It's a good point. And so, you know, when people talk about regenerative agriculture, um, a friend of mine was speaking down at Lakin, um, Gail. And if- Brother if you, Gail Fuller? Yes. He's my friend, if you, Roy. If, if you haven't heard Gail speak, um, I would take a strong dose of antidepressant before you do because he's pretty darn honest with how rough things can be. Um, he tells it like it is, and he always yes. has. He doesn't pull any punches, and he's not going to say anything to make you feel better. No, no. And I had never heard Gail speak, and the first time I heard him speak down there, I was like, whoa. Uh, but, he's, but you're dead on about what he says. And so that afternoon, it was it was the closing... Uh, keynote, he was speaking about what is regenerative agriculture, and it's not defined. And, um, you know, looking at the mental health aspect, and it's something that I had been pondering for 
a long time. And so at that point, while he was speaking, I pull out my phone and I write up what my vision of regenerative agriculture is. And regenerative agriculture, it starts with changing the soil, but it ends with changing the food system and the possibilities that our rural communities have um, that come with it. And um, the kicker is I haven't done anything with this. I've, I've had a number of people read it and they're like, that's, you know, it's good. Now, what are you going to do? And it's like, I don't know, is it meant for successful farming or the New York Times? Um, and so with my wife's urging, and I've been dragging my feet on this because, um, I don't know, it's, it might sound weird to some people, but sometimes success is a scary thing, you know? And do I want to write this book about what is regenerative agriculture that's based upon this know, seven or eight paragraph thing that I put down? Um, but at the same time, it's a story that needs to be told. Um, and it's not just for the farmer that it needs to be told. It needs to be told for the consumer. It needs to be told for our soil which in turn needs to be told for the health of our nation. Um, but it, it all goes back to, you know, you wanted to get into marketing. Well, the reason that marketing is important is because of these huge effects that we have long-term on these things that we don't, we don't think about. We don't see what's that impact of a guy in Northeast Colorado that's reduced his chemicals and herbicide usage by 75% or more, what's the big deal there? Well, the big deal there is he's growing a highly diverse rotation that anybody can do with an air seeder, a sprayer and a combine, uh, no special equipment, anybody can do this and they can take it either to commodity market, I'm working with a company right now that is looking at buying a grain elevator to focus strictly on regeneratively grown crops, that they're gonna use the Colorado Star Program as the foundation for scoring this so they can take it to food companies. So as we get these links put together, this is important for our nation because as long as we take care of the soil, the next generation that comes after us has something to work with. If I kept farming the way I was farming, when my stepson comes back to the farm, well, first of all, I don't know if I could afford to bring him back to the farm. Second of all, he'd only be able to do it when he's in his 40s and 50s, not when he's 19, because I couldn't afford to do that. And the only reason I would need somebody is because physically I couldn't do it anymore because mentally and physically I'm shot. You wonder why farmers commit suicide. It's because they have the weight of the generations of work of their family on their shoulders every day. You know, if I go bankrupt and lose the farm, not only have I lost what I've worked for, but I've lost what my father has spent 40 years of his life and what my grandfather spent 40 years plus of his life doing. Everything that three generations of my family has worked on is gone. And so that weight hangs over my head and I don't know if it necessarily consciously hangs over my head, 
but every farmer has that on them. Yes. And that that stress is there every day because they're so worried about making money. But as a farmer in Northeast Colorado, if I can find a way and share it with others and show them that there's markets out there, that you can be profitable, your children can come back, we can build food processing in our community instead of shipping it to Denver. And we can process it and package it here and then ship it to Denver. Then all the dollars start flowing to the plains instead of flowing to the city. And suddenly we have a, a rural economy that is living in abundance, that is regenerating itself, that is bringing life back to, to the land. And that is why I do this. And this is why I get fired up and I get way off base. Um, because it is so damned important that we do this. I, I, I can't disagree with anything you just said, Roy. You know, the narrative that industrial agriculture, commodity agriculture is feeding the world is just flat out wrong. Um, I, I'm, look, I'm still looking for the receipts on this, but I saw... saw or read a paper that said that somewhere between like 75 and 82% of the food that's consumed on earth is grown by subsistence farmers. So America's commodity farmers that are feeding the world, we're, you know, there's maybe a 20% slice in there that they can say they're feeding. And the model doesn't work. The model of industrial commodity agriculture is not sustainable for rural America. It's not sustainable for land ownership, it's not sustainable without government subsidy. And ultimately, you know, you take away any one of those legs of the pot and the system starts to fall. Commodity agriculture doesn't feed the world. It feeds the pocketbooks of some bankers, some big ag chemical companies, shareholders, companies, shareholders, shareholders you know, maybe even some legislators that own shares in some of those companies. You know, that's who industrial agriculture is designed to feed. It's not designed to feed people. It's not designed to feed the world, especially not designed to feed your community or my community. Like when, when you have a small, quote, farming and ranching community that's surrounded by farms, that's surrounded by cattle, you can't buy a damn thing made in this county here. I mean, barely. You can't go to the grocery store and buy anything that's really produced in this county. And what's worse than that is we've got a Dollar General in town. And they just opened a family dollar this year. You tell me why in a town of 1,800 people that has been shrinking for the last 40 years, we get a Dollar General and a family dollar? There's money to be extracted. I, I love what Mike Calicrate says about, about companies like that. They're just the last, they're the vultures showing up to pick the last wealth from the bones of rural America. And you know, there's some communities around, um, can't remember any of the names that have that like told Dollar General and Family Dollar to pack sand. Like, no, you cannot come in here. You cannot come in here. And I applaud those efforts. You know, yeah, Dollar General might show up and offer two or three jobs that aren't currently present in the community, but those really aren't 
that great of jobs. And it's probably going to kill more jobs in the community than it creates, you know, of, of local enterprise or a small business. But I, I guess I don't have to rant about family dollar. Everybody hears me do it often enough. I want to hear about your wife. You teased me a little, you teased me earlier that your wife was from uh, Chicago, suburbs of Chicago. My mother is actually from um, Highland Park, Illinois. That's where she, uh, that's where she's from. So she spent a lot of time there, had a lot of family um, between Highland Park, Northbrook. Uh, yeah, I'm going to quit there because I'm going to forget forget a bunch of it. But, uh, so I'm, I'm passingly familiar with the suburbs kind of up on the north end of Chicago. Did uh, I did my Navy boot camp up there too. So how, how does your wife fit in all this? You, you teased me with it earlier, and I'm not sure how to get back there. Um, so she was born and raised, I think, Arlington Heights. When we met, she was living in Crystal Lake. So that's okay. northwest. Um, Arlington Heights, Buffalo Grove. That was, uh, I was, I was kind of searching for that, but Buffalo Grove is right next to Arlington Heights and Buffalo Grove was the last place my mom lived before she moved out to Vegas. Yeah. So, um, th that's where she was born and raised. Uh, that's where my stepson, uh, was born and raised. Um, he, of course he's, he's, he, you hear about those people that are from a different time that are are now he's definitely from a different time uh he's currently working in a feedlot and he enjoys working with cattle he hates working at a feedlot which i can agree with the second part the first part i've been run over by enough cows in my life that you know we used to have a cow calf operation and eh. when he comes back to the farm if he wants to do that well, he can do that and then we'll have some livestock, but I'm not just adding livestock to add livestock. But um, Barb and I met on there. There's an app called words with friends. Okay. Uh, and you know, it's, it's essentially a two person Scrabble game and you're randomly matched up with people or you can play with people that, you know, from Facebook or whatever. And, and so I was matched up with this gal um and to be honest with you i am not a good speller at all you know th there's a reason i went to the colorado school of mines it's because you don't have to take writing at the colorado <laughs> school of mines you have to take lots of math and science classes but i can do that but you don't have to be able to string words together on a piece of paper that somebody else will agree is quality or not um so in words with friends my strong suit was strategy of you know can i get things laid out where I can get that triple word score and 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 that's that's what was I would have like a winning move kind of thing that would just have a crushing score and um and I pretty much played the whole game strategizing to get that to happen. Well, I started playing this gal and every time I was like this close to you know dropping that 150 point word She'd play in that spot every single damn time. And it was starting to piss me off a little bit. So I sent her a message. And I'm like, you need to stop playing in the spot that I'm getting ready to play in. And her response was boo-hoo, literally. Um, and that's how we started. Um, we continued to play. Uh, 
I think we started playing at the end of July, 1st of August in, in 2016. Um, she, I, I, I asked her for her phone number after a while. Um, she said no. So, but we started messaging back and forth. And she, I, I asked her, well, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? And she responded with, on a farm. And I'm like, ooh, you know, <laughs> because I know exactly where I'm going to live. And I texted her back, well, I have a farm. And she thought, yeah, right. And uh, so then she replied with, well, on my farm, I'd have chickens. And I said, well, I have chickens. And she thought, well. I've just met the biggest bullshitter on Words with Friends. And so we continued to, to talk and, um, well, message. And finally, she one day said, well, you know what? I'll give you my phone number, but you have to earn it. I'll give you two digits for every time you win a game. Well, hold it. I'm a math guy. And there's statistics there. <laughs> so I immediately went to statistics and I looked. Well, she's winning 80% of the time. I'm winning 20% of the time. So one game out of five, I would get two digits. If I need to get 10 digits, it's nine, but whatever. If I need to get 10 digits, that means I need to win five times. So that means I need to play 25 games. It's pretty simple. Yeah, that's, that's easy math. Yeah. And the game that we were playing, well, suddenly, you know, like I said, I'm lazy. Well, now I'm motivated. Yeah. And I was losing that game by 50 points, and I won that game by 50 points. And she immediately thought, oh, crap, what just happened? <laughs> and, um, Roy, and then I, Roy started trying a little harder. Exactly. Yeah, I got a little motivation there. So I, um, I started requesting a whole bunch of games. And she put her foot down on that pretty darn quick um, because it's all about volume at this point. Yep. And... Uh, so we we ended up talking for the first time on the 26th of October that year. And I said, well, you got to come visit, come visit the farm. And she's like, I will never come visit your farm. Um, but she didn't and, believe you that you had a farm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, you know, she, she finally came and visited the day after Christmas that year. Um, so I tell people I had to go out and find a farm and a family that would, would claim that I was theirs with some chickens so that I wasn't lying to her, you know, because I had told her this. Um, she she came and visited uh, for the first time um, the day after Christmas in 2016. And before she left, she had contacted her family members and said, if you do not hear from me for at least once a day, here is the address of where I'll be. And you need to call the sheriff and you know send them out because who knows what what kind of crazy person I'm going to go visit. Um, and you know that's 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 how it started. Now, um, she is the reason for a lot of the stuff that we do because her background, her bachelor's degree is in marketing. And she said, well, if you could do anything with your farm, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd love to be able to sell to the public. 
I'd love to be able to talk with the public. And if I sell to them, well, then I get to know them, they get to know me, and then they learn what agriculture is really about. Because from when I was a little kid, my dad always stressed that the most important job that farmers have is educating the public about farming. It's not growing food, it's education, because it all comes down to numbers again. The 3 million people in Denver could get together and they could pass something that would put us out of business. Be I tried. I mean and, and they'll do that unless they know us because then they support us and their numbers are suddenly on our side. And so this education aspect and so when we started our direct sales to consumers it wasn't to be profitable. That was actually nowhere on the spectrum of what, what, why we're doing this. We're doing this so we can meet people that go, well, glyphosate is the worst thing that's ever been invented. And we can explain to them why it's important for it to be a tool that farmers can use when they need to use it not something that's, it's Tuesday, it's time to spray glyphosate um, kind of thing, because that's how they believe that we treat some of these things. And there are some farmers that do. Guys, but, say that there are, like there is that producer, there's, there's feedlots that inject everything that comes into that feedlot with antibiotics. Like yep. it, it's dishonesty to say that it doesn't happen, but it's also dishonest to say that everybody in the industry doesn't. Yep. And, and it's just, you know, and that's when I when I meet with these people and, and I talk to our customers and I explain that to them. Well, you know, and that's part of our tour. Hey, right over there is, is a shuttle of glyphosate. You know, don't make eye contact with it if you're afraid of it. It won't it won't attack you. But, you know, we've used it since 1984. This is how we use it. This is why we use it. And once they understand that, and I literally had a guy tell me this at, at a, an event that was not for farmers. He's like, he started the conversation with, well, you don't use that evil glyphosate. And I said, yes, we do. And this is how we use it. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, it's okay for you to use glyphosate, but the rest of farmers can't. So it's that education aspect is why we started. And I, I told Barb that I'd, I'd love to be able to sell direct to the public. And she goes, well, why don't you? And it's because I don't know shit about marketing. And as she said, hold my beer. I have a degree in marketing. Exactly. She's like, well, why not? Well, I don't know packaging. Well, within, within a day, she had sent me a bunch of different options on packaging. Well, I, I don't know about what the rules are. Well, you know, there's the Colorado food um, Cottage Food Act, and here's the rules. And it was just that that step by step, that piece by piece, um, that that got us to where we are. And that's essentially the marketing workbook that we're putting together is kind of how we did it. And when she said we should do this, I said that's fine, but you write it, and I get to edit it. Because I guarantee you, if it has any business feel at all to it, farmers are not going to want to be anywhere close to it. 
because farmers don't view their farm as a business. It is a business, but it also is much different than a business. It, it, it has similarities, but the differences really set us apart. And so it's written by someone who's business-minded, but edited by someone who's a farmer who can recognize that we don't want to use these terms because farmers don't even know what it means. And so let's create this so other people can do the same thing that we did, so other people can think about direct marketing to consumers or specialty crop marketing, or how do you cold call a company that you've never raised that crop before, but you call them up and say, hey, I want to raise buckwheat for your malting company. You know, how much do you use? How much are you looking for? And, you know, it's, it's our buckwheat goes to a gluten-free malting company that they now buy our millet. They buy part of our corn. They buy part of our oats. Um, they're interested in part of the rice. They, it, for them, that first year we raised buckwheat was really a test in the faith of farmers that can farmers raise a crop that they don't know. And I was upfront with them and they came out to the field. Um, they actually helped us source seed for the first time because they were looking for a particular variety. Um, but we've developed a relationship now that when they do their strategic planning, the owner calls me and says, well, this is how much we're going to need. What are you going to have? What are you thinking about for acres on buckwheat, on millet, on this, on that? Do you know another farmer that raises these crops that we can work with? And that terrifies the hell out of my father that I'm going to introduce them to somebody who's going to price us out of the market. And my response is, is, well, if they price us out of the market, we'll go find another market. I found one. Why can't I find another? Are you saying that is the only market for buckwheat? Um, and then part of it also is, is we've shown that we have the dedication to quality that other farmers aren't, you know, haven't reached at yet. I mean, we, we own five different seed cleaners. Uh, Dad passed up one at an auction. I was really disappointed because, you know, it seems like our farm is where old seed cleaners come to retire. Um, With 14 crops of different stuff, you probably need all manner of different seed cleaners. Yeah, and part of it is volume. You know, we have one about the size of a, a copy machine, uh, one of the big office copy machines. It's a Clipper 2B. Um, it was manufactured probably 70 years ago. Um, does a beautiful job. And it's great if you have a bucket of beans that you need to clean for the consumer. But if you need a semi-load of buckwheat, well, then you pull out the 248 BDH clipper that was manufactured in 1969 that is one of the most beautiful pieces of equipment that you've ever seen because it's an oak frame with all wood. It's a beautiful piece of engineering. It looks steampunk because it's got the pulleys on the outside. There's no safety shielding on it. Um, that's been that back when either you pay attention or you lose a finger uh, was, was the common safety practice. Um, and, you know, I've had to learn how to use that machine. But now when I deliver buckwheat, um, 
the owners told us that the quality that we delivered, they had never seen before. We have that dedication to making sure it is as clean as possible. And there's been times where they'll call us up and be like, hey, we're seeing a little bit too, you know, more of, of sticks in there than what we are wanting. Okay, let me see what I can do. I swap out screens. I contact QC screens um, back east because they do an awesome job of helping us build the best screen sets that we can. You know, I reach out to my resources and I tweak things. And the next semi-load that goes up, they call us up and be like, you got it taken care of. We appreciate it. And they're also open-minded enough that, you know, we've started doing some intercropping stuff and companion cropping. Um, believe it or not, it's actually to help our bees more than it is to help the crop. Well, the crop is helped by the bees. So in a roundabout way, we have sunflowers growing in our buckwheat fields. So sometimes one of those sunflower seeds will make it through the cleaner. And she's like, okay, now why is there a sunflower seed in there? Well, that is the companion crop that helps the bees navigate these huge fields. Think about the size of a bee. A bee. It doesn't want to fly across a, a quarter section. But if there's landmarks that it can navigate by, well, then it will. A rest stop so, or stopping point. Exactly. And it's another thing that blooms that it can get nectar from. Um, mind you, we're looking at going out and terminating that sunflowers with our electroweeder because then we can do this without using chemicals and we can stop that sunflower at a development point where it's actually put more into the soil than it's taken out of the soil. So it actually is boosting our soil health when we stop that before it goes into flower. But we've developed these relationships and now we have that reputation where companies call us looking for 300 metric tons of buckwheat um, because of the work that we've done. And there is somebody looking for 300 metric tons of buckwheat right now. I guarantee you, if somebody has good quality buckwheat, I could have it sold for them within one phone call. Actually, I would even tell them who to call because there's companies that are looking for that on a, on a regular basis. And that's why I'm now working with the company to help develop a group of farmers that raise things with regenerative practices. So that company can go to food companies and say, what do you want? We have a group that can raise whatever you need with these practices. You just need to tell us what you want. And that way we bring the abundance back to rural America. It's all freaking tied together. I mean, it's it's really simple in the long run, but there's a lot of work to be done and we do it step-by-step. Step. Barb's doing her part helping with the marketing thing. Um, riding me to sit down and get the book written about what is regenerative agriculture because that story needs to be told to the American public. So they know why, if there's a sticker on their product that says regenerative or, you know, the Colorado Department of Ag is developing a sticker that with the number of stars of this product came from this field that is using practices that it's a three-star field or it's a four-star field, or if you're lucky, a five-star field, which is really hard to do. Um, well, they say it's hard to do. Um, I kind of nailed it first year out. 
they called me up and they're like, um, nobody is supposed to get five star. And I'm like, oops, sorry. Um, but it's possible. And using these practices, people can do it. And I just want to share that with other people that they can change their operation and they can regenerate the farmer as they regenerate the land. Because as you, I'm sure, have experienced when you go to these farm conferences, you run into the guys that have gone regenerative and they have an energy and a passion that you don't see in the row crop commodity farmer. Um, very excited about agriculture and the opportunities. Uh, we, I talked, uh, I can't remember who I talked to uh, at Soil Health U a couple of weeks ago about this very thing. Like it was somebody that's been to several other conferences, like outside of regenerative ag, outside of, you know, the, the stuff that you and I like to do and talk about, you know, some of the more mainstream conferences, I think, uh, NCBA CattleCon was, was one of them that they'd been to and, and, uh, you know, some of the larger like crop type conferences. And I asked them the, the question I had for this person was what's, what's the, what's the atmosphere like when you go to one of these things that's not regenerative ag. You know, what are the producers like? I said, do they have any hope or are they all depressed? I said, well, the few producers that do show up at those things, they're depressed. They're depressed. They don't have that great of an outlook on life. They're, you know, they're the Kool-Aid drinkers. And the difference is the people that you see at the regenerative ag conferences, like uh, Brother Gail Fuller that we mentioned, um, my friend Macaulay Kincaid, our mutual friend Jay Young. Like, these are all except Gail. Gail's old as shit, but the other couple, you know, they're younger folks and they've got a lot of energy, they've got a lot of passion, and they've got a lot of hope and they're excited about what they're doing because they're not doing the mainstream. They're doing new stuff that works and that's that's why I love talking to you, Roy, and hearing about what you have going on on your farm and I wish we had more time today. I've got to get out of here and get moving. I'm actually a few minutes overdue already and you know, there's so much stuff we didn't even talk about. We didn't even talk about you know, about campaigning and cover crops for bees or intercrop strips. We didn't even talk about, we barely even talked about your bees at all. I'm sitting here for the last two hours looking at you and you've got, I don't know, what is it, probably 30 beehives behind you in your in your background? Uh, we have 25 is kind of the max that we try to run and hopefully they'll make it through this winter. <laughs> that's that's a lot of bees. Well, hopefully we can come back and, uh, and do another one of these real soon, talk about your bees and talk about getting into some more of Roy's marketing tips and how to develop markets. And I'm looking forward to reading that book when it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure you get a copy. All right. Um, where would you like to send any, send, send folks to? Um, the farm's website is pfzfarms.com. That's Paul Frank Zebra. That's the joy of having a last name, Falsgraf. Nobody can spell it or pronounce it. Um, and I'm on Twitter at pfzfarms.com, or you can search PFZ or Falsecraft Farms on YouTube to see some of our videos. We're on Instagram. I don't do a lot with that, or Facebook. And my big thing is LinkedIn and and Twitter is where I spend most of my time. I've got to put more time into LinkedIn. I just started just started working on that. It it has a surprisingly large ag community. Um, I've really been impressed with that, how that section has grown in the last year. 
Yeah, for sure. I and I I've worked on LinkedIn for a long time, and it just seems like the last few months things about ag or especially about regenerative ag are really starting to take off on LinkedIn. So I got to start putting some more time in there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great, great free thing. All right. Roy, I really uh, appreciate your time today, this morning. It's been a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. You just let me know. All right. We'll do. You got any, uh, any parting words, closing thoughts? Know where your food comes from. I like it. I like it. Shake the hand that feeds you. Yep. All right. Well, I guess we'll let everybody go get on with your week. Get out there. Kill the week. Have a good one. See you guys. <laughs>